possible that we might see record viewing the figures. Of shows renewed in May. Uh, having to reduce their advertising out there as well. pretty positive for the game. That has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the AMP podcast. My name is Hannah Walsh, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I'll be joined by Tony Marillis, Pierce Harding-Rolls, and Rory Goodrick. We're now going to begin by talking to Tony about the evolution of streaming aggregators and their purpose in the OTT market. Then we'll move on to Pierce, who will take us through Netflix's moved into games, exploring the expectations, opportunities, and challenges of doing so. And last but not least, Rory will be discussing the acquisition of Crunchyroll by Sony, why this move was taken and what are the implications going forward. So Tony, great to have you on today. At the top of your report, you state that the global streaming aggregation revenue reached $1 billion in 2020, having doubled every year since 2017. You described OTT aggregation as a natural evolution of the OTT market. What has led to the creation of aggregators and the subsequent growth in the sector? Yeah, thanks, Hannah. It's great to be on the podcast. Um, So in a word, well, convenience or perhaps inconvenience. So the number of OT services has grown incredibly quickly over the past five years, as almost all the major studios have sought to build their own platforms. Now, this in turn has resulted in a huge amount of content fragmentation, whereby in order to get all the content a consumer wants, they need multiple subscriptions. And staying on top of all these subscriptions can be quite draining. So an aggregator partially addresses the content fragmentation issue by basically keeping all the services a single place, thereby simplifying the consumer experience. So who are the main aggregators now then? Well, over the past four years, several aggregators have emerged as key players. So perhaps unsurprisingly, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Roku are the biggest named in the industry, all operating their own platforms. Amazon has Fire TV, Google has Chromecast, Apple has the Apple TV boxes, and Roku, of course, has the Roku boxes and sticks. Uh, but more recently, pay TV operators have also started carving out their position in the market by including a larger amount of SVOD subscriptions as part of pay TV packages and onboarding leading OTT services onto their platforms. And do OTT services need these aggregators? What do they offer to the OTT services? Well, there are a lot of benefits to working with aggregators. I mean, firstly, there's just the scale of it. Like By working with an aggregator, an OTT service can be placed in front of millions of existing video users almost overnight, really. This means that an early uptake of services can be significantly accelerated as potential subscribers are more likely to find out about your service and they don't have to go trawling through the internet for it. Additionally, aggregators have a lot of experience with various teething pains of launching an OTT video service. Almost all video services have suffered a significant failure at some point shortly after launch, which can be a PR disaster, and aggregators can make sure that those problems do not occur. I can definitely see the benefits in that. Um, It all sounds very positive, but I assume none of this comes for free. Well, of course not. I mean, nothing in the world is free, and the price that all these benefits come at can be quite steep, really. The main price is, of course, the commission that the aggregator keeps from each subscriber. Now, these commissions can often exceed the typical, I guess, 70-30 App Store commission that we got used to with Google, the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. But equally, they also provide more value than a typical just App Store. Now, the bigger issue is usually a few years down the line when the agreement is being renegotiated. Now, the, the greater reliance on the aggregator, particularly for smaller services, the less leverage the OTT service has to secure favorable terms for the renewal. Now, apart from that, 
like each aggregator is different and will have varying degrees of sharing data on subscribers, which can leave, I guess, the OTT service, not really knowing which content's most viewed or, you know, what demographics are typically using their, their service, as well as quite restrictive terms on online video advertising, which can make a hybrid monetization model, which is increasingly popular with various OTT services, like simply impossible. So it sounds like there's a lot to take into account. So how can these OTT services determine the appropriate strategy for their own business? And will all OTT services need to work with aggregators in some manner? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. And to be honest, it's not one with a single answer. I mean, each OTT service will have different ambitions and challenges to deal with. But broadly speaking, the way we see it is that there are three routes. One is not working with the aggregators at all and just going at it on your own. Second one is obviously the counter of this, working exclusively with aggregators. And of course, the third one is the blend of the two. Now, for large scale like OTT services, which are typically backed by household name studios, working with aggregators is not critical as they have the scale to absorb the initial losses in order to maintain their independence and you know, maintain the direct-to-consumer relationships they build. For smaller niche services, in contrast, they don't have the money to spend on large marketing campaigns. So working with aggregators may be their best business model. But it's a very interesting space to watch as OTT services and aggregators to a large extent are symbiotic. So OTT services need to ensure the universal access so all their subscribers can watch the content wherever they want. But equally, aggregators need a complete selection of OTT services to attract and maintain users. So it's really kind of a balance there. Thank you for that, Tony. A very interesting piece of analysis. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, the streaming giant Netflix announced its plans to enter into the video games market in July of this year, with the service set to be included at no extra cost to Netflix subscribers. We've seen news coming out showing how job listings advertised by Netflix reveal that their proprietary platform will include mobile games and some original titles, although we're yet to see more details around what these games will be. Pierce, your latest report examines Netflix's positioning in relation to the game sector. Why is Netflix branching into games and what strides has it already taken to make this shift? Thanks, Hannah. Um, primarily, I, I see this as a defensive move uh, against encroachment by other SVOD services in its most uh, penetrated markets. Our consumer research suggests that Netflix is coming under more competitive pressure in its core markets, especially across those kind of younger users that also happen to be very into their gaming. So this is a way to differentiate the offering in that context. It's also defensive, I think, against gaming activity in general. So you often hear Netflix executives talking about the competitiveness of Fortnite in the market against their own usage of their own services. So younger consumers are spending more time gaming than ever before. Netflix is competing with the game sector on a more general footing for time and spend. So diversifying the offering broadens the appeal of Netflix and its uh, move into mobile games. So that's its first move is into the mobile game space. It could also help with uh, subscriber acquisition in markets which are mobile first. Um, so that's particularly relevant, I think, to the Asian markets, for example. And Asia, of course, is a really strong growth market for Netflix. Aside from the sort of defensive move, I also see it as a longer term growth strategy. So diversifying into new revenue streams potentially uh, associated with games. Those things like in-app purchase or in-game spending could help drive up uh, ARPU if adopted, basically. And you also asked about, you know, what activity it's already got in games. Uh, it's worth noting that Netflix is already 
connected and commercially exposed to the game sector in a number of ways. It has an interactive video content strategy. Uh, it develops original content based on games IP. It also publishes ad hoc games based on Netflix IP, and it puts its original IP into other games. So this development, the sort of formalization of its game strategy is, is I think, a natural commercial move for the company. So what challenges does Netflix face here then? Um, is it a threat for existing game subscription services? Well, when you think of the scale of uh, Netflix and adding games to the Netflix existing subscriber base of over 200 million uh, subscriptions, then it automatically, as soon as that's done, means it becomes the biggest subscription service globally. Um, that's about four times bigger than PlayStation Plus from Sony, on which is a console-based service. And having that scaled audience on tap is obviously, um, you know, puts you in a, in a strong position. But it's not just about reaching a significant audience. Obviously, uh, games differ from original video in terms of production and distribution. So when you think about uh, games and the distribution of games, uh, they need to be downloaded to the host device or potentially streamed from expensive GPU based instances in the cloud, which is different from video services. And to start with, the games that they will be distributing will be download games. And so they'll only be available outside of the Netflix app. If you think about the user journey through the usage of those games and the accessibility of those games and discovering those games, obviously that is not a sort of seamless integration with the normal sort of Netflix experience. Um, so there's there's definitely challenges in terms of the user journey there. Uh, the other key challenge and really a fundamental challenge is the challenge of producing hits within the game space. Um, you know, it can take years of refinement to develop a winning game strategy. And although Netflix is likely to partner with external developers to try and sort of get a leg up in terms of producing well-received games, is still a major challenge. And a lot of technology companies or other media companies that to try to enter the space have you know, not been able to find a successful uh, strategy for games content in the past. Yeah, understood. Um, I've seen they're testing some of the Stranger Things games in Poland at the moment. Um, I'd be interested myself to actually see what they what they look like. Um, in terms of content spend, uh, how does Netflix's current content spend compare to what we've seen from other games publishers? So it's quite interesting when we compared the content spend of Netflix, which uh, on a sort of amortized basis was $12.7 billion in 2020, you know, that is significantly more than the biggest games publishers. So Electronic Arts, uh, for example, spent $1.6 billion. Uh, in terms of its R&D in 2020. Um, and you can see that the, the sort of scale difference there between the two companies. Um, so if Netflix was to, for example, increase its content spend by around 10%, which is not a significant increase on its current spend, it would immediately sort of propel the company into one of the biggest investors in games content. So it's definitely, I think, got the sort of background to compete effectively in terms of actual content spending, whether that's actually funding original games or licensing games into a subscription service setting. Yeah, and I guess that's without kind of shifting its current spend from its original content to the game's original content as well. 
Yeah, potentially, you know, this could be an additional spend. I mean, there may be some offset spending depending on where they see, um, you know, the most value in terms of their investments. Finally, with this shift from Netflix, uh, have we seen or are we likely to see any competitive response? So um, there's a few things going on in the market. And um, I think obviously both SVOD players and games platforms will be watching this development closely. So we've seen some experimentation with including video into game subscription services. I mentioned PlayStation Plus as one of the biggest uh, game subscription services operating today. That's a platform service for Sony consoles, basically. Um, They've experimenting with bundling in video content with what is predominantly a games-related service. And they're doing that, testing that in Poland, which seems to be a common theme, testing in Poland. It looks like they're looking to, in effect, extend into other entertainment categories to build up a more significant offering in that respect. And then on the flip side, other companies which have other subscription services are looking to bundle more progressively. So we've already seen Apple uh, bundle together its various services into Apple One, um, which is a it's, it's a different format to what Netflix is proposing, which is, in effect, a single product with Addition, the addition of games content. Apple is a kind of bundling together of different services. But I do think that different SVOD players will be looking at um, bundling of other types of content and services into their existing offers, especially if this proves to be successful. Yeah, definitely. I, c- I can see that too. Well, I'm very interested in how this evolves. Um, and we'll actually be hearing a bit more about Sony from Rory in a few moments. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Piers. So back in December 2020, Sony's Funimation Global Group announced it was acquiring Crunchyroll from AT&T. That deal has now been finalized, closing at a staggering $1.175 billion. With such a large sum at play here, this is a major strategic move for the company. Rory, for those listeners that might not know, can you tell us a bit about Crunchyroll? Thanks, Hannah. So Crunchyroll are an anime streaming service. So similar to Netflix or Amazon Prime, but just for anime. They've been around for about 15 years, so fans of anime would have been familiar with them for quite some time. The service interestingly started out as an anime upload site where fans could actually upload their own subtitled content and their versions of Japanese anime something they call fan subbing. And Crunchyroll really tapped into this growing Western fan base of anime in the mid-2000s. And then over time, Crunchyroll started to make deals with content publishers and anime studios, and they got more and more licensing deals um, to stream animes until it developed into the streaming service it is today. With uh, It has over 5 million paying subscribers streaming over 1,000 animes across the world. And Crunchyroll have really carved out quite a nice little space for themselves in the anime streaming game. As I mentioned before about subtitling, Crunchyroll have really kept with this theme and are are known for something called simulcasts, which is where a subtitled version of the latest anime shows are available to watch just an hour after their release in Japan. And this is obviously great for anime fans who want to keep up with the newest episodes as soon as they can, and really caters to this explosion in anime popularity we've seen in recent years something that's led to this very healthy purchase price of Crunchyroll by Sony. Sounds like an extremely interesting service, and I can see why they have a huge subscriber base. Um, But this isn't Sony's first venture into anime. Uh, To put this acquisition into context, what moves has Sony previously made in the anime space? 
No, you're right. So Sony have been in the anime industry for quite some time, since the 90s, in fact. So this purchase of Crunchyroll is really far from their first exploration into the anime world. In the mid-90s, they set up Aniplex, which is an anime and music production company who have been behind releases such as Full Metal Alchemist and Demon Slayer, both of which will be very familiar names to anime fans. They then set up A1 Studios in the mid-2000s, which really allowed them to start producing their own shows in-house. But in recent years, they've been much more focused on acquisitions, really, and, and buying up a whole range of anime streaming services. So before Crunchyroll, the most recent of these was Funimation, whom they brought back in 2017. And Funimation are really interesting because they've actually been around for even longer than Crunchyroll. And they've really made a name for themselves by providing high quality dubbing to Japanese anime. So now with the recent purchase of Crunchyroll, anime fans are going to have both the speed of simulcasting but also the quality dubs that Funimation have always been known for. So all in all, it gives a really great offering for anime viewers. And then a couple of years back, Sony consolidated everything they'd brought at the time under the Funimation umbrella. And they recently confirmed the same thing's going to happen with the Crunchyroll. So it's great if you're currently paying for both services. Hopefully going forward, you'll only have to fork out for one. But it's also worth no- noting that in 2017, when Sony brought Funimation, it cost them about $140 million. So then when you fast forward to 2021 and look at the 1.1 billion that Sony paid for Crunchyroll, it really just goes to show how valuable a strong anime brand is in 2021. Yeah, that's really amazing growth. Um, so what were the motives behind this move then? And what gaps will this fill in Sony's current catalogue? Yeah, so the acquisition of Crunchyroll basically allows Sony to offer a much more complete package for anime fans in general. And I think to gauge exactly what motivated the purchase, you really have to look at what Crunchyroll gives Sony that they didn't already have. So firstly, you've got to look at the numbers. Crunchyroll have 120 million registered users, 5 million of whom are paying. And this would stand out, I think, to any potential buyer. But then you look at the service itself and Crunchyroll's simulcast offering is a really big deal. They're the market leaders in this space and having access to the latest anime so quickly after release is just great for fans. And then I'd say the second big thing would be Crunchyroll's expansion into into events. A few years back, they started their annual Crunchyroll Expo, and they also have the anime award ceremonies. And I think Sony probably looked at this and saw a really great way to engage anime audiences and create perhaps a more loyal fan base. And then on top of this, they've launched their own Crunchyroll Originals and more recently even added gaming to their service. So Crunchyroll covers a lot of things that Sony didn't really have access to before. And when anime is seeing so much investment from the big streaming services, you really have to find a way to differentiate yourself from the competition. And being able to to provide things like events and gaming are all things that really help you stand out to potential subscribers. So it sounds like they're really touching every aspect of the anime space then. Um, I've seen in our own um, consumer survey that the consumer demand for anime has been has been rising. So could you outline how demographics come into play here uh, with that consumer demand? And how will this tap into a new audience for Sony? Absolutely. So if we look at the global increase in anime popularity, it's gone up from about 24 to 36% in the past three years, according to Ampere's consumer survey. And if you think about who's driving this growth, you might initially expect it to be younger audiences, say, under 35s. However, we actually find that the largest growth in anime popularity has been in audiences 
aged over 35. And in the past three years, the popularity in this older group has increased by two thirds compared to just 30% for the younger group. So then if I'm Sony, I might think, well, how can I capture some of this increase in popularity? And one way they might look to do this is to look at users within the Sony ecosystems that already exist. And the one here that really stands out is PlayStation Plus, which is PlayStation's game subscription service. And they're pretty big. They've got about 46 million paying subscribers. And there's been rumors circulating that some type of premium PlayStation Plus service that might actually include anime is, is in the works. And a move like this would be quite smart from Sony's end. Not only do PlayStation Plus have a massive audience, meaning you get to put your anime in front of more viewers, but they crucially have a lot of coverage with these older users too, allowing them to really capitalize on the growing popularity in this group. And then on top of this, of course, adding a premium service would also help Sony stay competitive against Xbox's Games Pass. So I think there's really a few ways to engage these older demographics. And I think tapping into Sony's existing services would be a great way to do this. That's super interesting. So we're really seeing the TV space, anime world really colliding with the games industry more and more then. Uh, thank you, Rory, for taking us through that. That's all we have time for, unfortunately. So thank you for all of our guests for joining us today. Tony, for taking us through the changing dynamics and increased importance of streaming aggregators. Pierce, for discussing Netflix's entrance into the gaming industry. And to Rory, for explaining the motives behind Sony's continued investment into anime. Remember to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. For more information on Ampere's research and services, please get in touch at info at or head to our website, www.ampereanalysis.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.